This week we'll be playing one of our favorite old episodes of the Rounds Table, because many of our Rounds Table team members spent the last week at the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine Conference in the lovely Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. We'll be back to you with new content next week. In the meantime, here's a little fix for all of you who were going into withdrawal from our old theme song. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine, hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am joined today by my good friend Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nate, how's it going? I'm doing very well, Amol. How are you? I am excellent. So today, Nathan and I are talking about uh, two topics. Nathan is going to talk about resident call shifts in the intensive care unit and its effects on clinical outcomes and on uh, resident well-being. And then I'm going to be talking about the natural history of thyroid nodules. Of course, as always, we will wrap up our episode with a good stuff segment, uh, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. And before we get started, we are trying a new little segment, which I'm calling Clinical Pearl Jam. This week, I want to talk a little bit about a clinical evidence synopsis that was published in JAMA called Are Pharmacological Interventions Associated with Better Quality Sleep and Alertness in Shift Workers, which is relevant to what Nathan's going to be talking about. So the quality of evidence for pharmacological interventions for sleep in shift workers is pretty poor. So we have low quality evidence. That's the first thing to say. That low quality evidence shows that melatonin is associated with 24 minutes of longer daytime sleep after a shift, but is not associated with falling asleep more quickly than placebo. There's no association for medications like hypnotics, like Zopiclone, and sleep outcomes. So that doesn't seem to have any improvement in sleep outcomes or alertness. It also doesn't seem to be associated with harm. There are some drugs that are used for alertness promotion, such as armodafinil or modafinil, and those are associated with improved alertness during shift work, but they are also associated with headache and nausea. So in summary, melatonin might have some slight benefit. There's not really good evidence for anything else uh, to be that much more effective or helpful in terms of getting better sleep or feeling more alert uh, in trying to do shift work. So that's a, that's a perfect lead-in to our first to- clinical topic, uh, which is to talk about resident duty hours and shift hours. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, I think, Nathan, and I remember commenting on how the Royal College's recommendation is for strategic napping, uh, which unfortunately wasn't covered in the JAMA evidence synopsis. I guess uh, speaking to the... To the- positive evidence, maybe even more than melatonin for, for uh, strategic napping with uh, the current state of uh, evidence. Not a lot of financial interest in uh, the nap industry. <laughs> All right. So Nathan, tell me about this study. As you mentioned, you know, this is obviously a topic that we have uh, looked at before on the podcast because it is a hot topic in, uh, in Canadian, uh, at least postgraduate medical education, the topic of duty hours. And uh, this study, uh, I think, uh, quite uh, well-intentioned, well-designed, tried to uh, look at the effect on both patient outcomes and uh, resident uh, outcomes uh, for three different types of call schedules in, uh, in two large medical surgical ICUs in Toronto. 
So this study compared three different types of call schedules for residents rotating in two different ICUs in uh, Toronto. The three call schedules were a traditional 24-hour call schedule, where the residents would work uh, an overnight shift and then be off the next day. The second was a 16-hour call schedule, where the call shift would start in, at 4.30 in the evening, and they would finish at 8.30 in the morning. And then the third schedule was a night flow system, where they would work 12-hour overnight shifts for three or four days in a row, have a few days off, and then... When not on the night shift, they would be working either from 8 to 8 or 8 to 4.30. So this is kind and of what, a replication of a lot of the, the work that's been done, it seems like, in other settings. really, People are really on the hunt for like the magic bullet call schedule, eh? Yeah, which call schedule is going to have the best uh, balance between patient outcomes and resident outcomes? And what they found in this uh, study was that there were actually no difference in adverse events or resident fatigue between the three different call schedules. The study randomized 47 different residents to the three different call schedules during their regularly scheduled ICU rotations and included 1,000 ICU admissions. And uh, I think this uh, shows some, you know, a lack of compelling evidence that there's any significant improvements either for patients or for residents with trying these different uh, changes from a traditional 24-hour overnight shift. So what do you think, Amol? Yeah, so Nathan... Uh... Can you just talk a little bit about some of the details of this study? How long did the study run for? It was a one-year study period? So it was actually conducted over six months, but uh, they did it in two different ICUs. So they had a total of six two-month blocks between the two different ICUs. So a year of data, but condensed over over six months from the two sites. I see. And so how many... So the thing that I'm struck by is that they're randomizing in two-month blocks. So... How many residents were involved? That doesn't seem like it's that high a number of, of people, actually. And I wonder if, you know, it might be confounded by things like variations in resident interest or skill or ability. So these were residents who were assigned to the uh, particular hospital for a part of their regular uh, you know, training curriculum. Most of the residents were internal medicine residents, around half, and then the rest came from anesthesia or general surgery, the other uh, specialties that have to do ICU rotations at, at their programs in Toronto. The, the residents could kind of opt out of participating in the data collection, but the schedule that they were assigned to was basically uh, assigned by the uh, center, and it was the center that was randomized on this two-month block to be using, you know, schedule A, B, or C. Right. And so do you know how many residents were in the study? 47. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, and then and in terms of whether this study has adequate power to detect important differences between the call schedules? So the, the kind of outcome, uh, main you know, primary outcome that they were looking at was patient adverse events. And so even though there were only 47 residents, there were 1,000 ICU admissions, and that was the uh, main sort of uh, type of data they were looking at to, to gather those uh, adverse event outcomes. The power calculations that they talked about in the study did indicate that for the difference they were trying to detect, uh, they were hoping to have 1,800 uh, admissions as opposed to 1,000. They still had um, identified uh, just over uh, 460 adverse events in their series. So I mean, they did have a large number of uh, events to analyze from that perspective. But I mean, you're, you're right. It's a, it's, a, it's a good point that uh, they may not have met uh, their ideal uh, sample size. Okay. So technically, this study may have been uh, underpowered, but... Honest, to be honest, the results are not out of line with what we know about other studies that have also examined this question, right? Yeah, that's right. There have been uh, other studies in the, in the critical care literature and in uh, 
you know, uh, clinical teaching unit literature that that have showed similar uh, similar uh, findings. So, how do we interpret this? I mean, I guess we're seeing again and again that it seems like uh, restricting resident shift length doesn't really affect quality of care or resident uh, quality of life necessarily, which or resident health, which is the other uh, kind of important factor that people who are interested in this topic, uh, you know, obviously care about. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, you do hear from people in uh, leadership positions at the Royal College that the 24-hour call schedule is unsafe. It's unsafe to patients. It's unsafe to residents. It's putting residents through, uh, you know, uh, a very strenuous physical experience that is not good for them or their patients. And I, I think, you know, the, the findings here challenge that uh, type of conclusion. The uh, actual result here actually indicated that uh, while the uh, rate of adverse events was similar between all groups, the rate of uh, preventable adverse events, there was a trend toward those being higher in the night shift, night float uh, group. And also there was a trend toward, or at least an anecdotal report of the residents liking that uh, the the least. You know, this is thought to be due to increased uh, patient handovers that occur in the night float group because there are more opportunities during the day where residents are coming on and coming off. And maybe this leads to uh, poor handover and a higher chance of maybe having some of these preventable adverse events from being uh, identified. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it seems like the weight of evidence and this study adds to that is suggesting that, uh, you know, really no, sure, maybe a 24-hour uh, shift is not ideal, but we haven't found anything else to be better than that. You mentioned that, you know, they studied resident sleepiness uh, and found no difference. Did they ask residents what system they preferred in terms of other aspects of quality of life? One of the benefits of a 24-hour shift is that then you have some working hours to have time to do things like bank or, you know, go to the dentist. Uh, Everyone always brings up going to the bank when they talk about the benefits of your post-call day, which I find uh, so amusing. Like, how often are we going to the banks <laughs> I, to, well, to, to, inter to interact with the teller? And uh, that that's like the main thing we want to do on our post. Not go to the gym, not visit with friends, but go to the bank. Well, because it's the one thing so, that's constrained by work hours. I, <laughs> I feel a, a real difficulty in visiting the bank, I must say. Perhaps I'm just a little old school. So in all of these uh, groups, you'll be happy to know that the residents would have had adequate time to go to the bank. It just depends on uh, whether they had that during their three full days of uh, being off clinical duties after their three days of night float or after their 16-hour call shift or after their 24-hour call shift. So I guess it's worth mentioning, uh, just kind of joking aside, that all of these call shifts uh, were within the work hours restrictions that are, are already kind of implemented within Ontario. And in fact, all of them were working less than 60 hours a week on average, which, you know, at least from, from my perspective and my program, that would be on the low end of the average week that I would work. Yeah. And, that, you know, and um, that's uh, obviously, I think, being quite uh, structured with being able to go home post-call uh, without too much uh, discussion about that. Right. Okay. So what's your major takeaway then, Nate? So I think this study, uh, with the kind of limitations that we've discussed, with perhaps that it was underpowered, and obviously despite it being a randomized trial, there's uh, elements of it that could not be blinded, like the uh, residents obviously knew which, um, which uh, call schedule they were participating in. I think this challenges further the 
uh, I think, assumption or immediate conclusion that a lot of people have that despite our, our I think, collective desire to have the optimal call schedule to uh, balance both patient and trainee and staff physician outcomes, this study does not provide a compelling uh, suggestion of an alternative model from the traditional model. Okay, perfect. Why don't we change gears and talk a little bit about thyroid nodules? So this is something that kind of uh, is at the intersection of both of our uh, clinical practices, Nathan. That's right. So I want to talk about a large cohort study that was recently published in JAMA, which showed that the natural history of benign thyroid nodules is relatively indolent and that relatively few of them progress to cancer or even grow in size. And this calls into question the current guidelines uh, for follow-up of thyroid nodules. So can you maybe uh, review those guidelines for us? Yeah, sure. So the American Thyroid Association 2009 guidelines suggest that benign thyroid nodules should be followed with serial ultrasounds for 6 to 18 months after the initial diagnosis. And if the nodule size is stable, they then suggest follow-up every 3 to 5 years. So these are nodules that are identified clinically or incidentally, are characterized on imaging, and have a negative FNA? Yeah, that's exactly right. So finding a thyroid nodule is increasingly common, largely as incidental findings as the use of imaging technologies increases. And so patients who have a thyroid nodule that have either some suspicious features on ultrasound or are greater than one centimeter, being the standard cutoff, those patients usually get a fine needle aspirate, like you said, an FNA. When they're found to be not malignant or benign, then they're sort of categorized into this group where the ATA suggests that they should have ongoing surveillance with ultrasound. The, the rationale for this is that there's a belief that FNA has a relatively high false negative rate or that the nodules themselves could ultimately transform into being malignant. And the evidence for that belief is actually fairly poor, at least it was in 2009. Now, the ATA guidelines are currently being revised, uh, but we haven't seen the new guidelines yet. We're counting out the days. <laughs> I'm sure you have it marked on your calendar. But Nathan, <laughs> let me talk to you about this study. This study enrolled patients at eight thyroid centers in Italy. They enrolled patients who had between one and four benign nodules and who had normal thyroid function and they followed them for five years. They were followed annually with ultrasounds by an endocrinologist, and a repeat needle aspirate was performed if the patient had any suspicious features. Additionally, they asked all patients at five years if they would consent to having a fine needle aspirate, even though it wasn't required for the study. Okay, so what did they find? So they studied 992 patients, and almost 90% of them followed up for the full five years. Uh, the mean age of their patients was around 50 years old, and they were about 80% women. And so here's what they found. They followed them for five years. They found that in only 15% of patients was there significant growth in the size of the nodule. New nodules were discovered in about 9% of the patients that they followed. So what, what about uh, development of malignancy? How common was that in their series? Yeah, so it was very uncommon. Only seven patients in total actually ended up having thyroid cancer over the five years. So that was less than 1% of all the patients. Of those seven patients, two of them, the cancer was actually not even in a nodule that was initially uh, the reason for their enrollment in the study. 
So it was really only huh. in five cases where the nodule became malignant or whether there may have been an initially negative uh, FNA result that ultimately ended up being positive. So, so this suggests that the initial FNA where, you know, there was all this talk about them having a high rate of false negatives, really 99% of them were, were fine. The, the rate of false negative was around 1.1%. So, so what do the authors suggest should be a, the alternative management plan for these types of patients? Yeah, so there's a couple of, I think, interesting features that inform the author's opinions on how this should affect guidelines. So the first was they, they looked at nodule growth. So 15% of patients had nodules that grew. So one characteristic or important characteristic of the growth is that when nodules grow, they tend to grow slowly and steadily. So it's not like there's suddenly an explosive growth, at least generally, right? And so they found that the growth tended to be linear and started within the first year and continued in the nodules that were likely to grow. So that's their mm -hmm. first finding. The second finding is that nodule growth is actually not really strongly associated with malignancy, which is really the outcome that we care about because just having a nodule in and of itself, unless you're having some, you know, local symptoms or something is not really that much of an issue, right? What they found was that in the five patients who had thyroid cancer, only two of them had nodules that grew, suggesting that nodule growth is really not very specific for malignancy anyway. Right. So this calls into question the, the ATA's criteria for who should get a repeat biopsy right? Or a repeat aspirate. So, so the ATA says that you should follow these benign nodules with serial ultrasounds. And if it grows by more than 20%, and they have a few additional qualifiers there, but basically if it grows by more than 20%, you should repeat the FNA. Now, these authors suggest that that really doesn't make a lot of sense. And they argue instead that clinical and sonographic criteria should play a larger role in who gets a repeat aspirate rather than a definition that's based on growth alone. So is that really their main takeaway is not that we shouldn't be following these patients at all, but that we shouldn't be subjecting them to repeat biopsies just based on growth? Yeah, no. So I think that's one of their major findings. And then the second finding, which is probably their most important finding, is how do we follow up patients? So their conclusion is based on the fact that only 0.7% of the study population was diagnosed with cancer over five years. And in two out of seven of those cases, the cancer was in a nodule that wasn't present at baseline. So based on that, and based on the fact that, you know, growth happens in a linear fashion, they think that a repeat ultrasound could be performed once at one year. And if it was stable, there's no need to repeat follow-up within five years based on their study results. And so you could do a repeat ultrasound at five years simply because they don't have data extending beyond that. So, I mean, I guess this is kind of uh, can be considered as part of a, a general trend from what I understand towards a more conservative approach to both uh, well-differentiated thyroid cancer and I guess thyroid nodules in general with the general understanding that this is, while increasingly common, papillary thyroid cancer increasingly common, still a minority, a very large minority of the uh, of the thyroid nodules that are seen are going to be, or only a minority are going to have a malignancy. And we have a very, very good test in FNA in distinguishing uh, benign from malignant lesions uh, in addition to sonographic features on, the, on those nodules that are initially brought to medical attention. So, and we also know that most patients with papillary thyroid cancer have a really excellent prognosis that's often discussed in, you know, the 10-year survival range, which is 
very different than most of the uh, you know endothelial cancers that we talk about. Yeah, so absolutely. they're kind of suggesting that. So they're kind of suggesting that you know number one, if you aren't shown to have a malignancy on the first go around, you're probably going to be fine over five year follow up, ninety nine percent of the time. And even those seven patients that end up having cancer, they're probably going to be fine too, even though they're going to have to obviously receive uh, you know treatment for their cancer. Uh, they probably are are not going to die from it. All right. Why don't we draw this section to a close and move on to our good stuff segment. So, Nathan, what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week? So this uh, caught my eye, although I wouldn't necessarily call it good. It was uh, an article that I saw in uh, Newsweek. It's called A Certified Medical Controversy by a journalist named Kurt Eichenwald, who does an extensive expose on the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine and uh, some financial irregularities that uh, have been identified in that organization, which are really quite uh, dramatic, basically describing that their uh, maintenance of certification process and the fees that they collect for this have been done in a way that is uh, completely fraudulent, potentially, or at least that's what's being alleged. And uh, there are comments like, you know, this is worse than Enron, uh, et cetera, et cetera, by the uh, uh, kind of accounting people that they have uh, quoted in the in the article, pretty uh, pretty scathing for uh, what I thought was kind of a prestigious organization. Wow! Yikes! So my good stuff uh, is depending on how you look at it, a bit of a feel good story. At least I think so. So uh, it was an article on uh, the CBC News called "Death Cafe Starts Up in Halifax." So first of all, this. Uh, obviously has a soft spot in my heart as uh, the birthplace of both one Nathan Zilbert and one Amol Verma. I'm already feeling good. <laughs> so Nathan, uh, Halifax is the latest city to host a death cafe, which is a gathering where people can talk about a subject uh, that as the person who is starting it, Deborah Luscombe, and I'll tell you a little bit more about her, says is an important part of life. Death is an important part of life. So Deborah Luscombe is, as described in this article, a fabric artist, a former midwife, and a Buddhist. Uh, she is starting a death cafe at the Trident Cafe, owned by one of our uh, high school classmates. Chums. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but I promise again, I have no financial interest in this. Um, so... That's good to know because I, I just assumed the Death Cafe uh, had a lot of uh, potential financial windfall for you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. This is a real winner. Uh, so thanks for, for disclosing that. <laughs> so, so basically, they're hosting regular sessions where people can come and talk about the various aspects, philosophical and practical, of uh, planning for death. And it's a really nice, I think, part of a movement of hopefully increased social awareness around uh, end-of-life issues. And one thing that I, I thought she said, which I thought was, was really uh, uh, neat, is that she says that she predicts, this is Deborah Luscombe in this article, predicts that just as baby boomers pushed for sexual liberation in the 1960s, they're going to bring change to traditional attitudes around dying. So who knows, Nathan, maybe from uh, our days of free love to free death. I think we're going to have to work Yikes. on that slogan at the death cafe. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, you know it's, it sounds like, a, sounds like an interesting initiative. And, and maybe brings a bit of a lighthearted uh, spirit to, uh, to an important topic. 
Okay, well, a pleasure to chat with you as always, my friend, and uh, hopefully we'll do it again soon. Sounds great. Have a great evening. You too.